The thoughts and opinions on Just Some podcast are of the hosts and guests and they do not represent the views of the organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. You're listening to episode one of Just Some podcast for advanced practitioners. I'm Ben, and I'm here with... Tom. Tom, why don't you uh, fill everybody in on kind of your background? Thanks, Ben. I am new into being an advanced practitioner. I have a background in ER nursing and ICU. I was in law enforcement before I got into nursing, and I'm glad I made the career change. So far, I have been able to experience a lot in the field and decided I wanted to become a family nurse practitioner, which is what I did, and now I currently work in a family health clinic. Well, I'm just kind of give a little bit of background on myself. I am a nurse practitioner also. I do have experience in family practice where I currently work. I also work in an urgent care and in small critical access hospital ER. Uh, prior to that, I did do a couple of years in IT uh, as a clinical administrator, and then also uh, several years as an ER nurse, which is kind of where uh, I decided to go back and get my nurse practitioner. Just kind of give a little background on what we're doing, or things we won't do, I guess I should say. You know, we may not talk about specific cases, as we don't want to violate any federal HIPAA laws. And if we do discuss cases, just know that the ages and sex may be changed just to uh, ensure that we don't identify any patients. Um, assuming that the sex doesn't have anything to do with the condition, as it would be kind of odd to have an 80-year-old male that's currently pregnant. That would be difficult. (laughs) Though it would be worth writing about. (laughs) Exactly. I was like, uh, actually, Ben, I do want to do that episode. Well, if we come across that, you guys will be the first to know. (laughs) Hey, everybody, this is Tom. And Ben. And I was just letting everybody know that we have several social media sites. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Just Some Podcast. So please, let us know you're listening, and we look forward to hearing from you. Well, let's uh, let's get into a story that you may have missed. Uh, this actually comes from Hutchison, Kansas, and I'm reading this off of the Kansas City Star. This was published about a month ago. It's a... Oncologist in Hutchison, uh, Mark Feeson, who is uh, was subject to investigation through Medicare, Medicaid, and Tricare, and submitting some fraudulent claims to the government for cancer treatments that were considered medically unnecessary. And it goes on to talk in the story specifically about one particular patient who was treated for four years, diagnosed with lymphoma. However, the patient didn't have cancer at all. The other things that it talks about is you know, significantly underdosing patients to have them continue treatments longer to kind of draw out the billing aspect of it. Now, I will say at this point, obviously, it is just under investigation, and, uh, you know, he's a subject of Medicare fraud, but at this point would be considered innocent until proven guilty. But, Tom, I guess my question to you would be, how do you think this is going to, you know, potentially impact practices? Well, in most cases like this, when they start these investigations... They have to go through all the facts, and what they'll do is they'll dissect, at least from the investigation side, they're going to dissect all the routes that this person had taken to employ these tactics. And then the next thing that the government is going to do from their side on the billing is they're most likely going to say, okay, well, this guy was supposed to be passing out certain dosage of a certain medication, and therefore we have to start figuring out some way to track and verify that. So what it's going to start doing for us, especially our... uh, colleagues in like oncology 
is this going to make it more difficult on them because they're now going to be tasked with some way of verifying not only that the necessary medications, but the necessary route and transmission that they're giving these patients these medications. So if your job wasn't already hectic enough or had enough charting, if you are in a field where you are required to give specialty medicine, be prepared if something like this happens or it goes through or he's found guilty, that eventually the government's going to say, okay, well, we don't want this to happen again, so now you are going to have to figure out some way to prove that you're giving these medications. Yeah, no, I certainly agree. And then, you know, I think even from, like, a family practice standpoint, I think this could, you know, potentially be impacting. I mean, obviously this is a, a news story on a national uh, website. I mean, Kansas City Star is a pretty relatively well-known newspaper, and, you know, patients are going to see this. And we already have some sort of... You know, stigma, you know, with patients who are, you know, against vaccines or against certain treatments or they want to try different things or not do anything at all, which is certainly their right. But I think this is going to add concern of are they really telling me the truth or are they just deceiving me to try to bill insurance? Well, and I think there was some hoopla semi related to that fact. Uh, recently, a nurse, um, and I don't know specifics, I just remember seeing the story. Uh, where they said a nurse was fired, I believe she was fired, for posting on an anti-vax website about being an anti-vaxxer and how it was harmful to children. And we, as nurses, including nurse practitioners, are seen as the most trusted profession. Above physicians, above firefighters, above everybody, we are the trusted go-to profession in America. And so we are, it's just going to lay that burden even heavier on us as the professionals to prove to our patients that we're not. You know, and from a, from a patient standpoint, I would, <laughs> this would piss me off. That's one way of putting it. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, I think every patient that you see, or majority of patients that you see, are going to have this underlying fear that it's cancer you know that once you tell a patient, hey, this looks like cancer, or hey, that's what I'm suspicious for, I mean, they kind of shut down and stop hearing anything. I mean, I know that I delivered that news numerous times in the clinic, and, you know, I, I usually tell them, hey, if you, you know, I know that you probably shut down after you heard that word, so if you have any questions, you can call me after hours, you can come back in the clinic, we can talk more, whatever we need to do. But, you know, here, this oncologist is telling them they have cancer, which to them is life-changing, uh, negatively, and now it's come to find out that some of them don't, and it was just basically a, a scheme to get money. On top of that, I mean, when you go back to patients and trust with any provider, advanced practice or, or physician, they you also have to deal with their mindset, which is not a which is not something that's always easy for us to do. You know, when a patient comes in and they're like, oh my God, my, my whole body hurts and I got the runniest nose in the world and I just know I need a pack. And you're like, no, you don't. So now we have to fight their own negative attitudes on top of trying to make a diagnosis. And then when they read stories like this, it, it's just one more nail in our coffin, so to speak, with the trust issues or people turning to Google and trusting that over the medical professional in front of them. Well, you know, Dr. Google does know all, Tom. I mean... He's, he's told me a few things. <laughs> so, well, he's told my patients to tell me a few things. Z-Packs cure-all. Yes. And uh, spiders are not fatal. I don't care what they tell you. So... 
Well, now, right. you know, just so if you're that one person to write about to write us an email, no. So <laughs> <laughs> we're just sticking with that, okay? I don't know what weird offset thing you have where a spider killed someone, but let's face the facts. You might lose a thumb, but you're not going to die. So we're just sticking with that. But the real question is when I turn into Spider-Man. No, you won't. Well, hold on. We're going to have to do some more research on that. Better ask Dr. Google. We'll come back to that on a later episode. <laughs> yes, hold on. I'm already writing that note. Later episode. <laughs> Spider-Man. Will a spider bite turn me into Spider-Man? No, and I, I, I guess that's another, <laughs> to get off the subject even more a little bit, when you say that, and you see those Facebook hoaxes where they're posting, oh, here's this new deadly spider and it's killed five people. And you have someone come into your clinic and they're like, I think I got bit by the spider. And I had to tell them, no, no, you weren't. <laughs> you weren't at all. But because at the same time. First off, yeah. that spider was only found in Zimbabwe. <laughs> and you've not left the United States. Well, not only that, I, I thought the uh, the spider, at least the one I saw, was a picture of like a common wood spider, like a, a house spider. So I was like, no, yeah, sure. Yeah. First of all, let's let's recreate this entire scenario. If you are a listener in Australia, you got stuff down there, which is the entire reason I won't come visit, okay? You have spiders that actually chase people, and I'm done with that. So, no, I'm... Mm. No need to visit Australia until you get rid of funnel web spiders. So let's be clear about that. But the point of this whole thing before I started ranting was when you, we have to fight their own thought process, and now we have to fight alternative facts that they're getting from somebody that is producing this, including people like Jenny McCarthy that is putting out those anti-vaxxer pages. And somebody else just posted a thing on Facebook where they're talking about uh, treatments for autism. Treatments for autism. Uh, <laughs> using using chemical compounds, though, is my, my issue. Is It's not legitimate clinical proven science that people are relying on. It's uh, stuff that may or may not contain bleach and is harming the GI tract of these, these children. And so when you combine this doctor... So even, even though he might have used legitimate medications the problem is is his misuse of them has now created this splinter universe where they're equating real science that we are trying to use for real patients with fictitious spiders and bleach treatments for autism and it's already a tough enough job and when you add that on top it's almost like looking down the barrel of a gun sometimes. So we gotta we gotta figure out some way to do something about that. And I think a lot of that just kind of boils down to spending some time with our patients and trying to educate them on. I will be honest. I have seen a lot of the the shit on Facebook. Uh, you know, like the well, if you cut an onion and you put it in your sock at night, you'll wake up and your your URI will be gone. And I had a patient uh, come in and tell me I I tried that and all I ended up with was stinky feet. <laughs> um, so a lot of it is just trying to educate the public on, hey, you know this is this is legit, this isn't, and hopefully you've built that rapport of trust with your patient that they're going to trust you over what they see on Facebook or the internet. And that is one of the inherent factors that make being a nurse practitioner. And this is nothing against our PA brothers and sisters, but 
nurse practitioners are seen as an extension of nursing. And so we are generally given a little more trust. So when we give that education, hopefully our patients are listening to it. And one thing I want to walk back on what something you said, Tom, the Jenny McCarthy thing, I believe, and I'm not 100% certain, but I think, you know, we certainly will do an, a, a future episode on vaccinations, I'm sure. Uh, but I believe that she has since walked that statement back, saying that she does not, in fact, uh, believe that vaccines caused autism. However, at this point, that's kind of like trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube. Well, and if uh, if that's true, then we'll I'm sure we'll examine that more. But again, I guess this goes back to part of the fundamental problem is she, as you said, the toothpaste is out. Those Facebook ads that are saying this, guess what? They're still populating. So there might be somebody out there who is not taking the time to actually speak to a medical professional, and they're still believing that, even though Jenny McCarthy may have taken it back. The damage is done. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so perhaps that's perhaps that's something also that needs to be addressed is the ease at which people with absolutely no medical training are making these accusations and people are believing it. Yeah, I just lost my train of thought. So that'll happen so the main topic of this podcast tonight is diets and ben and i have got together because we are both personally uh on diet plans and so with the importance it's playing in our personal lives we thought it would be important to impart some of that knowledge of what we can do as advanced practitioners to help our patients with diets absolutely yeah no i mean it's i see at least one to two patients a day that are specifically there for either weight loss or to discuss dietary changes or are flying to Mexico to do a gastric bypass. Uh, Gastric bypass has been a topic I deal with a lot up here. And I think also how many of our illnesses that we are treating have an underlying cause of either poor diet or obesity and those are huge components of treating the person and trying to get them to be well which kind of brings up you know when i was doing some research for this episode tom do you have any idea what currently or well, i say currently as of 2017 the uh, percentage of the united states either, either overweight or obese mm-hmm. i'm gonna go with 3.9 percent 70 Oh, well. Seven I was, zero. I was only off a little bit. Just a bit outside. <laughs> I don't know how they're laying off pitches this close. <laughs> and the other thing that I found that I thought was kind of interesting and certainly kind of ties into the diet, the amount of money as of 2017 spent on the diet industry alone, and this includes books, supplements, medications, fad diets, whatever the case may be. $70 billion a year spent on was the diet that, industry. Was that with a B? That was with a B. To be, to be completely fair, and I mean, I guess, you know, this is laying it out there, but I myself have been a yo-yo dieter before in the past. My problem is primarily finding a diet, uh, liking it, and then when I lose 20 pounds, I go, well, I can have that pizza now. And uh, never mind, it's a diet completely built on the premise I don't eat carbs. So right. <laughs> then you, you have the, uh, the in- inevitable fall, and then I'm right back where I start. I've, uh, and as we'll get into it here shortly, you know, I finally made 
the choice to buckle down. I got a six-year-old son, and kind of don't want his dad to see him have a STEMI. So I'm in the middle of trying to fix myself and went through a dietitian, and we're going, you know, that route. But as we're going to discuss, not only is there a couple diets, you know, that are very popular that we think advanced practitioners need to know about, but perhaps a little bit about their use and some things you want to pay attention to when you are talking to a patient about these diets. And the other thing I found kind of interesting is, you know, you, you see a bunch on TV and the internet for different diets and, and different things of that nature. This is not a new problem. Uh, when I was doing research for this episode, the very first diet book ever published was published in 1863. The title of the book was Letter of Corpulence. And at that point, it was considered a low-carb, high-protein diet. So that's kind of uh, been around for a while, and that's actually going to be one of the first diets that we talk about. Yes, I think I think a lot of people are actually familiar with, and there, there are several variations of the diet you just mentioned. Uh, the most popular you're going to hear now are, you know, Atkins or modified Atkins, the keto or ketogenic. Um, you're going to have several of those diets, they, they all follow the same primary path, which is eliminating your carbohydrate intake in order to produce fat loss. And, uh, you know, I had thought, because I can remember trying Adkins back in the probably the late 90s, early 2000s, and at that point I thought it was relatively new. You know, that was kind of when it exploded as far as television and popularity. Uh, it was actually the first time that the Adkins Diet book was published was 1972. Well, and so when I was doing some research for the show, because you're not the only smart person in this podcast, I was doing some stuff, and I actually found that while you may have found something on it in the 1800s, the 1920s is when the ketogenic diet itself was actually specifically designed. It's also known as the medium or long-chain triglyceride diet, and it is still used today in cases for children with epilepsy. Hmm. They have found, by using that diet, um, and I'm going to mess up some of the numbers, but it was a study done at Johns Hopkins, so it should be pretty easy to find, you know, that Google doctor right there. Uh, But they found significant uh, percentages of children either reduced their seizures or stopped having their seizures, and then after two or plus years on this diet, uh, with or without medication, some of the children actually stopped having seizures. And we are still studying that diet now. They found in 2015, I believe it's called dalclonic acid, is a a side effect or a production of this diet. And that is also helping with the reduction of of the uh, seizures. So we're still, 1920 to 2018, we're still figuring out stuff about this diet. Which, if you haven't figured it out, should also tell people about how complicated this subject is. One diet has been studied since 1920, and we're still figuring out stuff about it. And like I said, you know, it can still be traced back to, I mean, technically 1863 was the first time that it was even mentioned as a potential dietary change. So it, it's it's important for us when we're talking to our patients. And I, I think, again, just to reinforce of why we're talking about diets is when you have situations and you need to talk to your patient about their diet, it's important to remember that we're doing this for a reason and what those reasons are. And different diets can affect different people in different ways. So it's important 
to have a base understanding of what you're going to talk to your patient about. By no means are we going to be able to cover all that information in this podcast. This is more of a way to get the information out to you and maybe get you thinking about what you need to know. And I think I think the word diet itself has kind of a negative connotation. You know, I think it kind of sets everybody up for failure because it's not if you have a bad day, like you said, you know, and you have pizza. Uh, you know, some people see that as they've fallen completely off the wagon and then now we go from not doing, you know, from doing really good on our diet to, you know, kind of falling back off the wagon. So, I mean, a lot of it is trying to educate them that it's not just a diet, but it's a life, it's a lifestyle change. Well, and, and honestly, some of the stuff I was, we're going to talk about in some of these upcoming diets is the fact that it is that lifestyle change. And the, one of the negative things that you were going to find repeatedly said about the long chain triglyceride diets, which is the ketogenic, the, the modified Atkins, is that most of the time, except for the specific cases, and I should point out the ketogenic diet, if you're going to be using it for a patient or suggesting it for a patient for epilepsy, there are specific ratios of fats and everything that need to be in the diet. So please, it's not just, oh, go buy, go buy a, uh, an Atkins book and your kid's going to get better. No, it's, it's a little more complicated than that. But it's good to have that tool in your toolkit and say, I know that we can do something to help with this. But lifestyle change is distinctly a part of every part of the diet we're going to talk about. The only diet I oh, I wish I could do, oh, I, there's just, I can't. Uh, vegetarians, there's just, uh, look, and don't send me hate mail, all right? I, I, I get it. You want to live forever, and God bless you, but I can't, I can't not have meat. I, well, I can't. That's me. Uh, no, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, if it, and that kind of goes back to, you know, if it's a lifestyle change, if it works for them, great. I personally, I'm a huge fan of Wagyu beef, you know, and so I, I'm not going to give that up. Considering uh, we were both together at a steakhouse the first time that was eaten, no, um, I think that's like a flying first class. Like once you've done that, you're like, no, I can't go back. And so with, you know, the Atkins diet or the keto diet, so now, and at least I know with the Atkins, I'm assuming with the keto, no calorie counting or portion controls, right? Um, again, it depends on what you're at. Generally, no. Generally, no. But again, it's it's less about the calorie count and it's more about the ratios. And again, it's also depending on what we're talking about. If we're talking about me and you wanting to lose 20 pounds, that's inconsequential. If we're talking about somebody trying to do this to help prevent seizures or, you know, uh, with diabetes is, you know, not a, a terrible uh, diet for them to be on as well. You, you better have a little better control of what you're talking about to your patient because that's when things can get out of control. You can't just assume that none of these are one size fit all. Right. And so with Atkins and Keto, it's, it's kind of tracking your carbs and, you know, and then, so it's kind of a low carb, high protein type component to it and I mean personally you know I'm a fan of a diet that you can eat bacon I mean <laughs> you know you know what makes the perfect diet perfect what's that bacon ba- yeah. <laughs> you that, can't go wrong with bacon I'm just saying that disqualifies the vegetarian and vegan diets unfortunately unfortunately however however we we would be remiss if we did not mention that there are lots of bonuses to being on the vegetarian diet other than 
not eating meat. Like living forever. <laughs> <laughs> though, though there are there are some things that you are going to want to make sure uh, with either of these diets, any of the diets ahead. And I guess this is something we should just kind of throw out as a as a blanket: is know which lab work you do, know what signs you need to educate your patient on, paying attention for. Especially if they're like, okay, vegetarians. You get a, a young female patient who's, nope, I want to be a vegetarian. You might want to impress upon her the importance to watch for signs of anemia or things that you need to know about. If they're going to come in, that that's what you as the practitioner need to be aware of. Are you testing their, you know, are you getting a CBC? You're getting your CMPs? You're getting your vitamin B12 and iron levels? You got to be testing all those, among many others to make sure that you're taking care of your patient. You started them or you're helping them on this journey. It is your duty to make sure that you're doing everything you can for them. Some of the other research that I'd found, particularly on the like Adkins diet specifically, is, you know, we do like recommend the low-carb diets for our diabetic patients. I mean, when I have a patient come in who's newly diagnosed diabetic, that's one of the first things that I sit down and educate them is, hey, this isn't just cutting out the sugars and the cakes and and the candy bars, this is also trying to limit your use of potatoes and pastas. And they kind of look at me like, what? Because they have no idea that that's what turns into sugar in their bodies. And again, the unfortunate thing is, is what could be dangerous for us is suggesting these diets and then not giving them the tools to be successful with them. And like you said, it's important to educate them and say, hey, it's not this one thing. You know, you need to know and make sure they actually understand that. You can tell someone they're diabetic and they don't understand what insulin does. And yes, I'm sure I'm not the only person that has had a person come into their office and they had no idea what what you were talking about when you asked them when, when or how much or what was the last thing you did or when was your blood sugar or when they guess. That's always a, that's always a fun game <laughs> when you're like, uh, what was your blood sugar? Uh, about 190. Well, how long has it been that way? I don't know. That's about how I felt last time, so I guess it's 190. Okay, Roger Ramjet. Well, we're not going to be able to treat that, so we're going to actually have to use that thing where you stick your finger. And your higher protein diets, you can also run into issues with renal problems. So you certainly want to make sure that you're monitoring renal function on a routine basis. High protein also, in some studies, has been linked to... Uh, coronary artery disease and even early death and that would be a real bummer and kind of defeat the purpose like i'm not going to work my ass off to get this uh sweet bod and then uh you know croak so yeah if i'm putting in the work i'm i'm enjoying this thing that's like buying a ferrari and then like losing the keys like what the hell did you just do like that's you you just wasted everybody's time (laughs) and i'm saying when my wife finally divorces me because God bless her, she's a saint, but she'll get sick of me eventually. When that happens, I'm going to need a sweet bod because uh, I'm I'm not rich or handsome, so we got to be doing something. <laughs> That's why you're on a podcast and not on TV, right? He's got a face for radio, people. <laughs> Enough of those diets. Let's uh, let's get to something near and dear to your heart, Ben. Let's talk about the intermittent fasting diets. Intermittent fasting. So that's the one that, uh, as you stated, that's the one that I'm actually doing right now. Several types of intermittent fasting diets. And I know it sounds weird to say, well, there's several types, but as you kind of mentioned with the other ones, there's various types to handle as well. So with intermittent fasting, you have, you know, the 16 and 8 diet. So basically you would fast for 16 hours a day and you'd eat for 
eight hours a day. How about uh, 16 and 6? Not 16 and 8. Um, Apparently I can't do it. It's math. not a math diet. <laughs> Clearly Easy not. Diets, so. Um, just so you, and just for future reference through the rest of the stuff, uh, stuff, you know, the thing where we're, we're talking, that thing, uh, for the rest of that, uh, if you hear us talk about windows or time frames, that's the type of diet that Ben is referencing. Uh, the other ways that you can do it, and that actually the way that I'm doing it and my MA and my wife's even doing it also now is the, like a five and two or a four and three diet. So that's basically where for the five and two diet, you would eat what they consider normal for five days a week and then two of the days of the week you would uh, consume about five to six hundred calories people look at me when i'm crazy when i tell them that that's what i'm doing and how grumpy they would be but really it hasn't been bad for the three of us i mean you kind of space the calories out i mean now granted if you ate a little debbie cake at eight o'clock in the morning then yeah you pretty much shot the rest of the damn day uh, but you know you have to be a little bit smarter with it well, smarter with it would be the clue <laughs> of employing this type of diet. Uh, that's the one thing that scares me is I think I could do the one day a week fasting. I just, it's that second one. It's like, oh, it's on Friday when everybody else is eating pizza. And you, we all know, no, every slice of pizza is going to have one of the 600 calories in it. Like, that's a done deal already with this. I have walked away from pizza in the office, Tom. Um, I, too, have walked away from pizza on this diet. It was the least favorite thing in my life. I literally would eat pizza as my last meal on death row. But it is necessary, like I said, for the little one and the sweet summer bod. Uh, so, you know, that's that's why I did it. But again, here we go back to some of the things that you need to be aware of with your patients with these diets. And two of the, two of the first things that jump out to me is... One, know your patient, because I really would not want to hear about a practitioner saying, hey, diabetic patient, why don't you try this 5-2 diet where you don't eat for, you know, two days a week? I think that would possibly be a problem. That would be very bad, yeah. I mean, and it's, you know, in all the research that I did, it's strictly, I mean, particularly your type 1 diabetics that are using insulin, I mean, you uh, definitely not a diet for them. Exactly, so know your patient, and also, here's the other thing to know is if your patient has, you know, tried several other things and they have zero willpower, are they going to be able to do a fasting diet? That, unfortunately, that's the problem with a lot of with a lot of scenarios and people yo-yo is because of the, of the lack of discipline, which is no derogatory statement on anybody. I mean, I'm as guilty as the next person. But when you suggest this type of diet, which so far seems to be effective, it comes with certain sacrifices that that patient has to be no, that patient has to be aware, or you have to be aware if you're going to take on this diet, of what you're going to be doing, of the fact that two days a week or 16 hours a day, you're you're gonna you're gonna hear a tummy a tummy rumble. And the way that my wife does it is, uh, she basically eats from 12 to 8, and so 12 noon to 8 p.m. The rest of the time. She doesn't eat, which really doesn't sound bad when you look at it that way. Because, I mean, a lot of people skip breakfast. So, according to your math, uh, she has 10 hours left a day? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. <laughs> no problem. And he's got a doctorate, people. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a doctorate in math, though, so. Well, it's something to keep in mind. <laughs> yeah, it's not a doctorate in math. Thank you. I literally just caught on to that. 
one of the great things, though, especially in the application of this to patients, is there is very small studies, but several studies are coming out showing that these types of diets, all the intermittent fasting diets, are showing real positive results for patients that are susceptible or have been diagnosed with cardiovascular disease. Yeah, no, it's uh, showed that. It shows some small studies showing that it does appear to be boosted metabolism because at one point you're you're eating and the idea of eating on your normal days is you're not trying to make up the calories that you missed those two days so if you eat 6,000 calories the five days you're not going to gain anything by it it's also what? I know it's a shocker isn't it? <laughs> so I mean you try to limit your I mean I, I don't go hog wild on my normal days but you know I will have pizza or a candy bar if I want to. You're already selling me, Ben. You're already <laughs> selling me. Actually, um, after I get off my specifically structured diet that I paid a lot of money to a dietitian <laughs> to design for me, the 5-2 diet is pretty much exactly what I was looking forward to to continue on my uh, healthy journey. Yeah, no, you're, you're kind of the one who mentioned it to me first, and you know how Facebook is as soon as... Uh, that gets mentioned anywhere in your presence, then all the ads start showing up for it. And Is that not amazing? That's pretty awesome, I guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I get, some of the other things that I've seen as far as intermittent fasting is it can improve your glycemic control. So for maybe your type 2 diabetics who are early diagnosed or you know are, are decently managed, and we're not talking A1Cs of 12. Is that bad? That, well, depends <laughs> on the patient, I suppose. Um, the other thing that I found interesting about it that I wasn't aware of is it can actually decrease, or it is showing in studies, some decrease in inflammatory markers in diseases like asthma. So oh, I, a 5 no, fasting diet can actually uh, help improve asthma, which is one of the things that I'm afflicted with as well. See, I'd seen, uh, when you said inflammatory markers, I was thinking, oh yeah, the CRP and stuff like that. I was like, yeah, I, I'd seen that. I did not know that the IFDs or the intermittent fasting diets of done that in in other studies as well so that's interesting um you know but so, like you mentioned i mean the intermittent fasting diets can be hard to stick with um i mean I'm, well i was gonna say that's that's the one i think caveat to all these diets is and i and i i think maybe here in a second wrapping these up and like i said we weren't going to get to every diet out there anyways we just want to throw a couple out there and Honestly, it's episode one. We wanted to kind of get the feel out there and let people know who we are. But I think maybe wrapping this up, that's what we should discuss, is the, I guess the number one thing I thought about, and I think I discussed this with you when we were talking about episodes or, you know, ideas for episodes, when you tell a person, hey, you need to lose weight, and they go, okay, tell me how to lose weight, it is a failure on our part, if we do not tell them that effort and lifestyle change are as important as the food going in your mouth. I mean, without those, that those are the foundation of pretty much what the, the diets are going to be built upon. Yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely, there's no magic pill, there's no magic diet, and, I, you know, unfortunately, that's sometimes how a lot of these will sell themselves is... You know, this is going to be the next best thing, and you'll wake up tomorrow, and you'll have a six-pack abs. And you know, and we, and we laugh, we laugh uh, when people say that stuff. 
But then you look at these ads, and again, you can Google all this stuff, or Bing, if you're that person. You can, you know, do stuff from weight loss from the 30s and 40s, and you'll see, like, those machines where women would wrap belts yeah. around themselves, yep. and they would shake them, and we laugh, and we go, ha, look how hysterical. They actually thought that would work. But that's legitimately what's happening now. There are people that have no idea what's going on, or they just see a meme, or they're unable to do any sort of research, and they are in, they're pretty much doing the exact same thing, except in 2018, except instead of 1935. Yeah. And, you know, of course, now we have more videos of uh, that, you know, with the prevalence of cell phones and social media. So I guess in 50 years, they'll be able to look back and laugh at some of the shit that we have done. Well, not me, because I'm pretty awesome. So they'll, they'll just have to deal with, oh, I'm sure at my monument, there'll be somebody dedicated to like polishing the brass plaque at the base of it or something. I, I'm not sure what is going to happen in the future for me, but it's going to involve that. So should we discuss grandiose thinking at the next episode? <laughs> or? Hey, psychological problems. Yeah. Hey, that is a, that's not a bad episode right there, my friend. But, you know, <laughs> getting back onto the subject is when we're talking to them and when we're throwing this out there, you, you kind of touched on it. These aren't band-aids. These aren't things. And, and to be to be fair to diets like ketogenic, which I mentioned are not seen as healthy in the long term by a lot of studies, uh, or dietitians or doctors or physicians that specialize in uh, dietary uh, medicine, they say you know the ketogenic diets are not the best thing for you long term. However. In the short term, these can be a great starting tool. Or if you have a small, significant goal, uh, you've been on certain types of diets and you have that last 10 pounds to lose, the ketogenic diet might be the type of thing that propels you or gets you over that last hump. But in my case, when I have you know more than 10 pounds to lose, I'm going to stick with the intermittent fasting. Although I will say, at three weeks in, I'm about 11 pounds down. Granted, I have a lot to lose. But, I mean, I still don't think that's uh, too bad. I mean, I'm not counting my chickens and thinking that that's going to happen every month. But So two things, and, and, and that's another thing, like I said, I think we're almost done, so we'll, we'll quit beating some dead horses here a second, or at least I will. But when, when you're talking to your patient, that's another thing that you need to remind them of is not every diet, or you should not expect every diet to be the biggest loser. You know, people watch a one-hour show of Biggest Loser, and they see four or five months of work condensed into a one-hour show, and they think by next week they should be down 60 pounds. Yeah. Well, first of all, they shouldn't. And second of all, if they were, you got big problems, you know. So I think trying to tell someone or trying to remember 11 pounds in three weeks is healthy. I have lost a little more than that. However, I have had the aid of a uh, stomach virus. So, yeah, that, that's been fun the last three days. But it's, it's important to remind ourselves, and it's important to remind our patients that this is not... You, you didn't get fat overnight. I didn't gain this much weight overnight, so I'm not going to lose it overnight. And I think with some of the tools we discussed today, making sure we have good education, communication, and we understand which patients deserve which type of diets that... As advanced practice, uh, advanced practitioners, we can really start helping patients when it's on the diet forefront. 
Yeah, and the only last thing I kind of want to touch on, uh, just because I do prescribe some of the medications, would be some of the medications that can be used uh, you know, for weight loss. Uh, you know, the first being probably the, the most prevalent one would be like fentramine, which is a controlled substance. is basically a mild amphetamine. tends to curb the appetite for the patients, and they do tend to lose weight because of that. The other thing that it does do is can make them have a side effect of excessively thirsty, so, I mean, they're drinking more fluids. Um, it's probably the cheapest option, um, and that's kind of the one that the patients tend to gravitate toward because most insurance companies, like, I can only think of one one insurance company that I'm aware of in my area that pays for weight loss medication, and that's the state insurance. Not like Medicaid, but I mean, like, if you work for the state. The other medications out there, there's Quaisma, which is actually Fentramine and generic Topamax mixed together. Saxenda, which is an injectable, and it's actually the same molecule as Victoza, which we use for diabetics. Uh, basically causes you to pee out about 350 calories, so if you're not eating any extra calories and you're peeing out 350 calories, statistically you should lose weight. And then the last one I've seen quite a bit on TV lately is Contrave, which is Narcan, or generic Narcan, and generic Wellbutrin together. I mean, of course, Wellbutrin we use for smoking cessation sometimes with patients, and the Narcan obviously is used in the ER for opioids, which I'm sure will be an episode at some point, but it's also has shown to curb late-night cravings, uh, so that's why it's used there. Although I will say from most of the studies that I have seen, the majority of the medications, drug reps will tell you differently, and I'll probably get hate mail for that, but the majority of them all kind of cause about the same amount of weight loss. There's not one that particularly stands out. I'm actually looking forward to the hate mail. Of course you were. I I hope I hope we do this show long enough. People get to know me more. Um, but I have not met a fight I can walk away from just yet. So uh, if you don't like something I say, please let me know. Except maybe you're doing them right now. Yeah. Uh, except for that. Well, hey, we have not had to pause the show for any. Uh, commercial breaks just yet so well it's episode let's just one count. we don't have any sponsors <laughs> yes so um it would just be me humming randomly and so here's a if we don't have the information now and benjamin would be the person to tell us um if we don't in the future in episodes we will lay out uh ways of contacting us do we have an email on our website we which do. by the way we have several social media and websites now uh, at just some podcast. Yep, nope. just some podcast.com is our website. And right now, of course, it's pretty basic because, hey, this is episode one. Uh, beyond that, social media, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at just some podcast. And you can certainly reach out to us at any of the social media. Uh, the website, there is a subscribe button there that you can subscribe for updates as we go. Uh, we plan on pushing the podcast out to all forms of that are available for podcast listening but certainly reach out to us if you have questions comments or if you want to hate on tom bring it <laughs> tom anything else you'd like to say to wrap this episode up no i had a blast i hope that there is uh we're, we're getting some interest now i hope we get continued interest and people tell us what they want to hear i mean we could talk about what we want to talk about all day and and that's great but we also want to know what you want to listen to. So please let us know. Yeah, reach out to us on social media. Uh, reach out to us on the website, certainly. And uh, I think we're going to wrap episode one, the pilot episode, you know, the beginnings 
of what could be probably not the greatest podcast ever, but hey, we're going to give it a damn shot. By the way, that name was already taken, so we couldn't use it. Well, yeah. That's why we settled on just some podcast. (laughs) All right. Well, I had a blast, and I believe uh, this is Tom signing off. And this is Ben signing off, and we will talk to you soon. The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and they do not represent the views of the organizations that employ them or they volunteer for.